What's good, everybody? And this week's podcast is brought to you by our amazing friends at Skillshare. Guys, it's 2020, and you guys, if you haven't hopped on Skillshare, please be sure to do so. Skillshare is an online learning community with a ton of amazing resources that can help you, whether that's learning how to do photography, web design, social media marketing, video editing, and so much more, guys. Skillshare has resources for you. And this year, a lot of you guys are trying to figure out how to make an extra $200,000, I'm going to tell you a foolproof way of making that money this year. As you guys know, so many people want to be podcasters, make music videos, do YouTube. If you can learn video editing skills, Skillshare has an Adobe Premiere class on its website. You learn how to do Adobe Premiere, you learn how to do video editing. You can make yourself so much money. I'm talking about the market is booming. You will thank me later. And there's so many more photography. Everyone's trying to be influencer nowadays. You learn photography, you can make so much money. So guys, head to Skillshare right now. Skillshare.com slash roommates. You have a two free month trial of Skillshare Premium. Yes, that's two free months. That is Skillshare.com slash roommates. And after your two free months, they have plans for as low as $10 a month. You guys will love it so much. Thank me later. Be sure to sign up. You guys will not regret it and enjoy this week's episode. This week on the Roommates Podcast. The analogy that came to me is that every single one of these people treats life and business and success like a nightclub. So there's always three ways in. So there's the first door. The main entrance or the line curves around the block where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. That's the first door. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making you feel like those are the only two ways in. You either wait your turn or you're born into it. But what I learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door. Yo, what's good, everybody? This is Alfie's and we are back in Los Angeles, California, guys. This is a miraculous location I'm in. <laughs> I I don't know the finances of this new roommate, but I'm telling you, they are doing very well. <laughs> this guy is somebody whose message really, really stood out to me. I was hearing him talk on Matt Diavella, shout out Matt's podcast. And I was like, dude, if anybody understands my life experience is this new roommate coming up. So guys, please give a very, very, very special roommate welcome to the one and only Alex Benayan. Thank you very much, man. Did Thank I get the lot. pronunciation? Yeah, that's perfect. Great, man. I have a history on this show of butchering people's last names. So well, you didn't <laughs> repeat that history today. <laughs> How you doing, man? I'm feeling great. Okay. I am... I'm doing well. The the travel has been bits I've been on t- book tour and it's slowed down the past couple of weeks. So I've really been in town. Well, except for like a weekend trip. I've been in town for like a few weeks, which okay. is like the first time that's happened in a year. Oh wow. And it feels yeah, I'm in a hoodie, I'm in jeans. <laughs> I'm just like yeah. relaxed right now. So I'm yeah. really grateful. That's awesome. So I and thank who- you for thank you for coming. 
Oh, no, man, appreciate it, man. I think for me, one of the biggest, uniquest of our show is to be able to travel to our um, new roommates. And to me, what I like the most about it is it allows people to be in their environment. I know a lot of times, you know, when people meet somebody for the first time or doing a show, it's really uncomfortable. You know, they may not be as relax for the first time so to be able to go yeah. to people in their environment i love that part of it just get to get people in their natural habitats beautiful awesome so alex i know who you are but for our audience who doesn't know who you are can you give them a bit of an elevator pitch synopsis the well i'll the professional you know synopsis is i'm the author of the book the third door and it's a international bestseller i spent seven years writing it and <laughs> I spent seven years researching how the world's most successful people launch their careers. And, but it wasn't like traditional researching, as you know. I pretty much tracked, I went on these wild goose chases. I tracked down Bill Gates, Lady Gaga, uh, Larry King, Quincy Jones, Jessica Alba, Jane Goodall, Maya Angelou, Pitbull, Quincy Jones, Tim Ferriss. It's been this unbelievable journey filled with surprising lessons at every turn. And what I learned is that every single one of these people treats life and business and success the exact same way. And the analogy that came to me, because I was 21 at the time, you know, I started this when I was 18. The analogy that came to me is that every single one of these people treats life and business and success like a nightclub. So there's always three ways in. So there's the first door, the main entrance or the line curves around the block where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. That's the first door. And then there's the second door, the VIP entrance, where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making you feel like those are the only two ways in. You either wait your turn or you're born into it. But what I learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Bill Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door. So that's not only the title and the thesis of the book. That's really the mission and the energy I'm trying to inject into the next generation. That's awesome, Alex. And, man, I want to I want to get into this this book because it's just so good. And, and it reminds me so much of my story. But I'm really curious to what was your background growing up? Like, what was that like for you being a young adult and, you know, development and family life and all that good stuff? I am the son of Persian Jewish immigrants. So, you know, my parents came to America as refugees 40 years ago. And if you know any you know Jewish immigrants, I pretty much came out of the womb. My mom cradled me in her arms. And then she stamped MD on my behind and said, <laughs> and you know, you think it's funny, but in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween and thought it was cool. You know, that was my childhood growing up. And, you know, in high school, I checked all the boxes. I studied for the SATs. I took, you know, pre-med summer camp and I took all the biology classes. So by the time I got to college, I was the pre-med of pre-meds. And it was not only my family's dream, it was, you know, my grandparents' expectation and it wasn't until college that really for the first time I wondered whether I'm on my path or I'm on a path that somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. 
No, that's really good because my family is Nigerian American. Uh, well, I'm Nigerian American. My family's Nigerian. When did your parents come over? They came here in the 80s. So that's like about 40 years ago as well. Very similar fashion. And mm. but the advantage of my family is like obviously whether you're Persian, whether you're Jewish, whatever you are, all immigrants have a very similar story. <laughs> that there's three major careers that our family wants to take part in. Law, medicine, and then engineering, or if you want to throw in computer science into the fourth mix. Very liberal. <laughs> yes. Very forward thinking. Yeah. And but the beauty about my parents is that they never forced me into that bubble. My my dad He's, he might get mad about this, but he doesn't watch the show. doesn't matter. <laughs> but he used to always call us doctors. <laughs> he, used to, he used to always call us doctors and lawyers, kind of giving us that identity. Not not like forcing us, but, you know, kind of planning to see in case you guys are interested. He would he would tell us these things. Look, I get it, man. Yeah. It's I, I actually can't empathize with how hard it must have been for my grandparents and my parents to come to this country leave everything behind and have to start all over again. And, you know, my mom and dad sacrificed a lot for me to get an education and they don't want me, you know, rolling the dice on being a, a writer or whatever. You know, being a doctor is a really admirable job. You save people's lives. It's a safe, secure way to make a living. It's good for society. You know, it's very obvious. You know, they didn't hate me that they wanted me to be a doctor. They loved me and they wanted a really safe path, but, that wasn't what I was born to do, but I realized that in a really uncomfortable way. And I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, but that's something I feel as though for a lot of immigrant kids, that's one of their biggest struggles. The biggest struggle I've seen is that for so many people, they, because of the sacrifice and all the goodness their parents have done for them, now they feel obligated to live out their parents' dream for them. Well... They're not getting that shit out of nowhere. What do you mean? There are implicit messages. Oh, yeah, of course. Of course. In of the course. household. Of course. Like, even saying things like, <laughs> you know, you don't know how hard I'm working. Or, yeah. 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 So, yeah, <laughs> that guilt comes from somewhere. Exactly. And, and again, I'm not knocking. I'm just saying immigrant kids don't come up with these theories out of nowhere. Exactly. It's in the air. That's so true. And But one of the challenges is... For a lot of people, when they get older and they eventually live the life their parents want them to live, they realize that's not the life I want to live. If they're lucky, they realize that. Yeah. But then, unfortunately, for a lot of them, they're stuck. They're stuck because for most of us, for most... They think they're stuck. They think they're stuck. Great point. They think they're stuck because of the careers they're in. If you're a, if you're a doctor and you spend... You know, four years of medical school, three years of residency. You know, you let's say you have loans, you may not have loans, and now you're in your career. What sense does it make to quit your three hundred thousand dollars salary job and to become a first grade teacher in the inner city? Like your parents will blow up, <laughs> you know. And if you're a, a, a lawyer in New York City, you know, just passed the bar, and you're interested in, let's say. Man, just being in environmental sciences and maybe being a parks ranger, <laughs> like to be able to quit your law job in New York and move to Colorado or somewhere in the Midwest and be a parks ranger. So many people are so afraid of their parents 
and what their parents are going to say to them that they wouldn't even take that risk. But what I'm hearing from you and what I also had is that we love you, mom and dad, <laughs> but we got to do what we got to do. And we were able to free ourselves from that and to take risk into places in which our family would have naturally probably not wanted us to move into. Because like you pointed out, when you're an immigrant and you've struggled so much in America, the biggest thing that you care about is security. Because obviously, like you said, was there a civil war or something that happened in Persia? Is yeah, it, the, the, the Iranian revolution. Yeah, and the, the, the czar got sacked or something like that. The castle got is that saying <laughs> sort of right? like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know a little bit of it. Patrick Bay David taught, like educated me about it because that was his story as well. And um, so I understand how why security is such an important issue, but but to really be great from obviously from reading your book, sometimes you got to do things that are not safe and secure. What I've learned is that the reason most people don't achieve their dream, you know, going back to the third door analogy, you would think the hardest part is running down the alley, banging on the doors, figuring out how to way to get in. What I've learned is that it is hard, but the executing part, the running down the alley is doable. It's hard, but it's doable. You'll figure it out for the most part. The reason most people don't achieve their dream has much more to do with the fear of leaving the line for the first door. Break that down for us. That's where your friends are. That's where your family expects you to be. That's where you've grown up your whole life. That's where you went to school. That's where maybe your spouse is also in that line. That's where your community is. That's, first of all, I don't want to knock the line for the first door. That's how you've survived up until this point. That's how you have a you know roof over your head. If you're lucky enough to have food on the table, it's against human nature to leave the place that's sustaining your life. And it's the fear of the suffering that will happen when you leave that line. That unknown suffering. Even if you're suffering in that first door line, you're miserable, you hate your job, you hate your life, you hate your relationship, you hate whatever. Let's say you're in a miserable position right now. You feel your soul is being crushed. You don't know what your purpose is. Let's say you really are in a bad place, hypothetically. Most human beings will prefer that suffering over the potential suffering of the unknown in that alleyway. And the job of the third door is to show people, yes, the alleyway is scary and you'll get bruised up and muddy and some scary guy will try to mess with you, you know. But it does get better. And there are people in that alleyway who want to help you. And it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be fun most of the time. But the pathway to achieve your dream is through that third door. Right, let's jump right into it. So... It sounds very simple and it's extremely frightening for a lot of people. How in the world were you able it's to simple to explain hard to exactly. hard to live? I tell people all the time the the greatest distance in life is from the theoretical to the practical. Going from an idea in your head to actually executing the idea in real life. And so my question to you is that, you know, obviously you were medical, you know, on this pre-med track, you had all your parents' expectation. What in the world <laughs> came over you which made you want to 
stop and completely follow your dreams? What was that? You know, I think in hindsight, it's very easy to be like, oh, it was that moment. But I, you know, from all my research, there's never a tipping point. You know, it's all just little steps. And for me, it just started out very simply of, you know, when I first started even thinking for the first time, maybe I'm not on my path. The question is not only, okay, then what's my path? The question is, all right, I know I had interests. I liked business. I liked tech. I liked entertainment. You know, I liked finance. I liked all these different things. How did all the people who I looked up to, how did they do it? And how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software when nobody knew his name? How did Warren Buffett raise his first fund without a track record for his first fund? You know, how do you do these things? How did Lady Gaga get her first record deal when, you know, she didn't have a single hit under her belt? And I just assumed there had to be answers out there. So I just went to the library and just started, you know, going through business books and biographies and self-help books. And I couldn't find a single book that focused on not an age in life, but a stage in life. When no one's taking your calls, no one's taking your meetings, how do you find a way to break through? doesn't matter if you're 16 or 60 years old. When you're starting something new and you're trying to get it off the ground, how do you find a way to break through? And eventually, I was left empty-handed. And that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in. And I thought, well, if no one's written the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? And I thought I would just call Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else, and I thought it would be done in a few months. That, I assumed, would be the easy part. Dude, it's funny. I can actually remember, you know, being 18 and emailing, like, press at BillGates.com or what I, I remember that. Um, that, I thought, would be the easy part. The hard part, I felt, would be getting the money to fund this journey. You know, flying to meet all these people would cost money, money I didn't have, and... You know, I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash, so there had to be a way to make some quick money. So two nights before final exams, I'm in the library doing what everyone's doing in the library right before finals. Cramming. I'm on Facebook. Oh. <laughs> the other thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm on Facebook, and I see someone offering free tickets to The Price is Right. And... You know, the game show, it's the longest running game show in U.S. history, and it filmed not too far from where I went to school in Los Angeles. What school? I went to USC. Of course. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this book? You know, not a good idea, yeah. not a good thought. Yeah. Uh, you know, clearly very preposterous, but I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments that no matter how dumb an idea is, for some reason it won't leave your mind. Many moments. I had that moment just five minutes ago. <laughs> <laughs> so to prove to myself it was a bad idea, I remember opening up this notebook and writing, you know, best and worst case scenarios to prove to myself it was a bad idea. And I remember writing, you know, worst case scenarios, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid, mom stops talking to me, no, mom kills me. You know, there's like 20 reasons, yeah. you know, not to do this. Mm-hmm. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund this dream. And it was almost as if somebody, you know, tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night, I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I said I had hacked the prices right. Mm. And I went on the show the next day and did this ridiculous strategy and I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown. Wow. Winning a sailboat 
selling the sailboat and that's how I funded the book. That is insane. That is insane. Man, stories like that are really fascinating to me because I I wonder how much luck and how much talent went in to that break. Because for you, obviously you would have found another way, but that was like a lottery gift, so to speak, that helped you, you know, jettison and be able to achieve your dreams. But for a lot of people who don't have that break at the beginning to be able to jumpstart them, I wonder if they can create that break or if that break is a byproduct of serendipity and chance. What do you think? You know, there's someone who I interviewed for the book who has a much, much, much crazier story. Um, his name is Chilu, and he grew up in a village outside of Shanghai, China, with no running water, no electricity. And by age, you know, 27, he's making the most money he's ever made. $7 a month. Fast forward 20 years later, and he's a president at Microsoft. It's one of the most remarkable stories, you know, of the generation, in my opinion. And you sit with the guy and you have to ask him, you know, was it luck? You know, you have to ask him. And he had a really interesting insight. He said, oh, literally pull it up right here. Uh, go ahead and pull it up. All right. There we are. We're here. This is in three sentences. What I think is the luckiest man on earth's definition of how luck works. So he, the context is he's telling me that he does believe in luck. I asked him, do you believe in luck? He says, I do. But he also says it's not completely random. And these are his words. He goes, luck is like a bus. If you miss one, there's always the next one. But if you're not prepared, you won't be able to jump on. And, you know, his story really goes into, you know, showing that in a really, really powerful way. But what I think is powerful about Chilu's story is, you know, it's just, I, it's remarkable how if you knew how much work he put in, um, And how unlucky he was in so many, you know, parts of his early life. Uh, it's just it blows you away. No, that that's a really great point. And so I want to share a little bit about my story, and then we'll we'll continue this back and forth dialogue. So a lot of people would always ask me, "When did you start this show?" But before that, a lot of people when they hear about this show, they're always really surprised by the guests we've brought on. They're like, "Man, how did you guys get so and so and so and so and so and so?" Because for the most part, our show is like a, a medium-sized show. It's not like a huge show. and We're not like mega celebrities, but we're able to get great quality guests as big as the best shows in the country with guys with multi-million dollar budgets and all types of really interesting strategies in which they're able to get guests. And people are always like, man, how were you able to get these guests? And I, was, and I tell them a very simple phrase that nobody believes me. And I say, I asked them. 
And like you said, it sounds simple. But it came, that simple phrase started when I was 17 years old. So when I was 17 years old, I was my senior year of football, and I started out the year as a fifth-string cornerback. Fifth string. So obviously you can tell what my coaches thought of me. <laughs> After two weeks of practice, I was starting cornerback and I had a really bright senior year ahead of me. Unfortunately, a myriad of things happened. My parents went on vacation and took me with, with, with them. So I missed like a week of practice and then got benched for it. And then I got sick and missed like four weeks of practice. I got benched for it. And then uh, so many things would happen. So at the end of my senior year, I had barely any film. Nobody really believed in my talent, but I personally believed in myself. And I told myself, I'm going to play college football. No one thought that was true. So at that time, I knew I couldn't play Division A, but I knew I could play Division I AA and, Divi and Division II. So what I did was I went online and I reached and I got the phone number for every single Division I AA and Division II school in the country. I called every last school and I reached out to every coach and I sent whatever coach would pick up the phone and talk to me, my highlight film. And it all accumulated into, by the end of my senior year, I had three scholarship offers. And at that very young age, similar to your sign, I learned there's always a way. And I learned that, like you said in the, your book, it's always the unconventional way. Because like you said, same thing, with, same thing with illustration when it came to football. The first way is to, you know, hope that you're, you know, you get a scholarship from your coaches. That's like the first door. Your coaches help you get a scholarship. The second the second door is that you're born with super amazing talent and then you're able to, you know, either through your family connections or, or you, your crazy highlights, you're able to get a scholarship. But then I found the third way and that w continued to move me forward into everything I ever did in life to be able to realize that, man, when you want something, there's so many unconventional ways of going about it. And that's why I continue to pursue. And that's one thing I saw. In, in what you did, like how you were able to get some individuals, interview them who nobody in the world thought you could be able, a, a young kid could ever achieve, but you achieved it. And in your journey, what would you say was probably the biggest obstacle in being able to go through these third doors and was a challenge that, man, you're like, bro, I would never <laughs> want to go through that ever again. You know, there's external and internal challenges. Uh, you know, the obvious external challenges is, you know, you're an 18 nobody kid, you know, no credibility, and you're asking, you know, Bill Gates for an hour of his time or Warren Buffett for an hour of his time, and they hire people specifically to say no to that. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's definitely the external challenge. And, uh, again, all the power to them. They don't owe me anything. That's, you know, I, I, I admire, you know, how focused they are with their time. Um, but those are the obvious external challenges and then the internal challenges that I wasn't aware of. My fear of making mistakes, my fear of rejection, my fear of being abandoned by the people I love, uh, which caused incredible amounts of desperation. And for most people's journey, doesn't matter if you want to be an author, an entrepreneur, a musician, 
It's the internal challenges that are the hardest ones to deal with. And that's and that's exactly what I thought you were going to say. So I, I recently met up with a guy. He's um, familiar with Tom Bailey Impact Theory. Um, his name is Christopher, and he's uh, you met you know Chris? Okay, so you know Chris. So I was meeting with Chris, and we had like an amazing conversation about as a booking agent, like the number one challenge is the constant rejection. And the biggest thing is to not accept that rejection as an identity. Because as you know, when you're asking people who have way more leverage than you for favors, who don't have any reason to give you a favor, a lot of times you're gonna get no, or maybe not right now. But it's so easy when you get so many of these no's and get so much of the rejection to make that your identity, to be like, okay, I probably am getting rejected because I'm suck, because I'm not good enough, because I'm not valuable. How were you able to fight against that identity from forming in your life and to not accept the identity of being a loser because of the rejection you were going through from pursuing your dreams? (laughs) Harsh way to put that question. Hey, man, that's how I feel sometimes. <laughs> that's how I feel. Uh, I didn't. Yeah. No, it definitely beat me down. Um, you know, I spent eight months going after Warren Buffett and writing him letter after letter after letter after letter. Yeah, three months of rejection is really painful. By the sixth month, you feel like you're throwing up blood. And. It's hard, man. It's, yeah, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. It's really, 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 really painful. And now your question was, how do you not put that on? Yeah, I wish I had a simple answer. What I do know is when you're dealing with tremendous amounts of rejection, and this is applicable to anyone if you're applying for jobs, if you're getting rejected in your love life, if you're getting rejected with your dream, if you're getting rejected trying to raise capital for a startup, um, you're getting rejected applying to colleges, whatever it may be. There are two things that kept me from completely giving up. The first, do you remember the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? Mm Mm-hmm. So, remember that Volleyball Wilson that he ends up talking to? Mm-hmm. So, there's that Volleyball Wilson. And when you're on the desert island of rejection and you are just getting hit left and right, to me, the final thing that Volleyball I was able to talk to that kept me from just completely letting go was very, very rarely, but didn't happen as often as I wanted, but going back and remembering why I was doing this in the first place. And I had this belief that if all these people came together, not for press, not to promote anything, but really to share their best wisdom with the next generation, young people could do so much more. And I think there's this romanticized belief that if you have this like mission, like you'll jump out of bed the next morning No, at least not for me. Mm -hmm. But it was the single strand, the string I could hold on to from complete letting go, and that's all you need. That was the first thing. The second thing I think is grossly underrated, especially at this time in our culture, 
when you're getting beat up, you're getting rejected, you feel like your eyes are black and blue. Take a nap. <laughs> you know, take a break. And it's funny because it's so foreign when you're in the trenches. It's very counterintuitive. And I look, I'm all for productivity. I'm all for, you know, pushing it and hard work. I'm all for that. And, you know, I'm not a fan of wasting time, but the only thing worse than wasting time is completely losing out on your dream. And the times that I was the closest to completely throwing in the towel is when I was pushing myself to a level that was unhealthy. And I did it a lot and I still find myself doing it every now and then. Go home an hour early and turn on some Netflix. Go for a walk. Go for a bike ride. Have some ice cream. Whatever your thing is. You know, go to therapy. Therapy, hang out with a friend, whatever your thing is. Because every mistake I made on my journey is because I was so desperate and so tightly wound up. And when your back is against the wall and your dream is falling apart, it's very counterintuitive to pause. Man, so one of my goals for next year hopefully i can be able to achieve this is to get gary back on the show okay because there was one question i didn't ask him and i really really wanted to ask gary this question and it's going to you know obviously gary v's eat shit model just love eating shit and i <laughs> gary says eat shit i say eat ice cream <laughs> and <laughs> the reason why i loved your ice cream point was because you call it eating ice cream i call it drink from the reservoir and what I've realized is that for a lot of people who are... The reservoir is unlimited, though. Okay, let me let me explain to you what I mean by the reservoir. Same thing with the ice cream. There needs to be a time where you... By the way, I'm not endorsing eating disorders. Yeah. So, you know, eat an apple, like have a, yeah. get a smoothie, yeah, you know, yeah. do whatever's healthy for you. Of course. But the reservoir is symbolic to what can replenish you. So what you describe, whether it's time with friends, Netflix, eating ice cream, you know, going for a walk, going to a counselor, what what gives you life and replenishes you? And one of the things that I've noticed just from examining Gary was it was two things. As much as Gary was like, oh, I worked 24-7 and ate shit and I did that. But he had his family. And Gary's a huge family man. And he loves his family. He loves his mom. He loves his dad. He loves his brothers. He loves his sister. So I could only imagine, obviously, working for your family is a different dynamic. But just having family in your life and being able to go to them and to be able to talk to them and spend time with them and to be loved by them, to be valued by them, that was his reservoir. That was his ice cream, which made the shit (laughs) that he was eating a little bit more enjoyable. (laughs) And so... What you described was so good because for a lot of people, they think I just got to suffer and I just got to work 24-7. And, 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 and it's possible for some. But for most people, like that becomes overwhelming. And that really begins to wear and tear. Even for me, I went through that, man, this year. I was like, yo, I can't. Like you were saying, you get to that point of like absolute like despair because you're just grinding so hard and you're giving it all, but you need to have that reservoir. You need to be able to have those moments where you replenish yourself. And I love that you brought up how you did that and how that helped you move forward. Thanks, man. 
no problem. So another thing that you, you mentioned in the book, and I think is a, a crazy concept that I, I learned from women. <laughs> I learned this from women because I took the third door strategy and I use it, like I said, obviously I didn't steal your book, but I'm saying I've been doing something very similar my whole life. But I took this relentless abandon for everything I wanted. I took it in everywhere of life, but then I used it with girls and I realized that's the one place <laughs> that is not as effective. And the reason why, and you brought it up in one of your interviews with Matt, was because of the blackball effect. That there is a I have no idea where you're going with this, okay? Great, let me explain to you. So it's like, there comes a time where if you keep on asking, you become rude, you become overbearing, you become annoying, and you end up doing more harm than good. Over persistence. Over persistence. And so what I would do was I was just thinking that, okay, if I'm just super crazy persistent, I go after it no matter okay, what. Okay, I got, I got, I got where you're going. You know what this mean? is what I would say. This go is what ahead. I would say. Um, you know, the third door is a business book, so let's focus on business. Um, but this is true of all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all yeah. aspects of life. Of course. The reason someone is, I'll speak about myself. Go ahead. The reason someone is over persistent uh, for myself is coming from a place of desperation and fear. If you trust yourself, these are very foreign concepts to me when I was starting out. Yeah. If you trust yourself, trust the process, trust the universe, trust God, have faith. You don't need to hit someone up 30 times, right? You don't <laughs> yeah, need yeah, to, yeah. right? You would be more thoughtful. You'd be your natural self, which is thoughtful and kind and empathetic and compassionate. But when you're in that place of fear and desperation, that's when you start not listening to your intuition. Desperation clogs intuition. And again, I wanted to bring this back to, you know, the focus of yeah, why we're here. Of course, of course. And, but again, wherever you learn these lessons in life, as long as you're learning, yeah. um, it's beneficial. But what I would say is, There comes a point in everyone's life where you start, hopefully, I, I'll, again, I'll just talk for myself. It took me a couple years into this journey to start slowly being able to put myself in the shoes of the people I was reaching out to. Warren Buffett's assistant is very busy. <laughs> and it's not part of her job description to respond to my emails. Um, I'm not entitled to response. Um a response is a gift. Even a saying no is a gift. They could just ignore it. Um, they have every right to, it and it's completely fair. And it wasn't until I learned to really build a pipeline out and almost create that abundance energy and gratitude. You know, there's a friend of mine once said to me, gratitude functions on a much higher frequency than need. Gratitude functions on a much higher frequency than need. And when you're in that place of need, when you're in that place of fear, when you're in that place of desperation, when you think your whole life, your whole sense of worth is on the line for you to get this thing, mm -hmm. you're not in your integrity anymore. Mm -hmm. And I can speak from experience. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard when you're starting out, but I also know a lot of people who are you know, I once heard someone once say that, and this is not speaking from experience, someone else told me this, that a lot of uh, 
really wealthy people lose most of their money when they go from trying to when they have nine hundred million dollars because then they get really excited to try to hit that billion and they start doing risky investments. Uh, again, I'm not speaking from experience there, but a friend of mine told me that that he's seen a lot of people lose a lot of money the second they hit nine hundred billion nine hundred million because they just want to hit that arbitrary. Yeah. That doesn't even mean anything literally, yeah. but in their head it means something. Mm-hmm. It means they're more worthy. Yeah. It's that accomplishment. It's that mountaintop they projected and created. Um, I was with a, a friend yesterday. Her name is uh, Naomi Levy. She's a wonderful author and rabbi. She said, sometimes the story of love isn't the truth of love. And same is true about success. Sometimes the story of success isn't the truth of success, especially in our own heads. Yeah, that's that's really good, and that's and that's the point that I was kind of re, kind of bringing full circle was that's what I learned from the relationship that I applied to business, is that when you the other person across the computer screen, across the phone, across the office is a human being as well. And with human beings... Dealing with stuff you have no idea. Exactly. And it's not until, like you said, you put yourself in their shoes and you realize, man, 17 missed calls (laughs) from one person is absurd. You know? Three is absurd. (laughs) Unless someone's dying, do not leave three missed calls. Yeah. Mom. (laughs) But, uh... But that that concept is one thing that I had to learn. Like I literally, I, I kid you not, I literally learned that probably this year. Because, like I said, it wasn't until I finally realized, I was like, whoa, 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 like now you're hurting yourself. Now you're damaging future opportunities. And I love what's it? It was a Warren Buffett story, right? In which you over pursued. You mind you mind care sharing a little bit about that story? Yeah, no, exactly. It's the Warren Buffett story. Yeah, I like I said, I spent you know eight months trying to track him down, and I, yeah, I wrote letter after letter after letter to his office. I called it assistant week after week after week, um, and it got to the point where I ended up doing that for eight months, and through a different avenue, I ended up getting an interview with Bill Gates, and the interview with Bill Gates went really well. And at the end of the interview, they said. How can we help? And I said, you think you can talk to Warren Buffett for me? <laughs> and they were like, absolutely. And I got an email a couple of weeks later from Bill Gates, chief of staff. Um, I'll never know what happened when he reached out, but I do know I got an email saying, please, no more contact to Warren's office. Mm. Thanks. And the lesson was that there is a such thing as over-persistence. You can bang on a door so many times that instead of breaking it down, they call the police on you. And, you know, no business book talks about that. And what I learned is that you can dig yourself into such a deep hole that even Bill Gates can't pull you out. Mm. And that was the part that when I when I heard that, I just literally stopped and I was like, man, these certain people I'm reaching out to, whatever it is, like have I had the cops called on me, <laughs> you know, have I prevented myself 
from now experiencing more opportunities. And I love how you brought it brought it back to people are going to ask, okay, how do you know the difference? You know it in your heart. Like you said, when you're functioning out of desperation and proving your identity, like you're, 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 you're doing so many things unorthodox, which is good. But then a lot of these unorthodox things, if you were in your right mind and not insecure, it'd be a no-brainer why like to not do these things. But when you're not being healthy and when you're not drinking from the reservoir and when you're not functioning out of gratitude, you then do these things. And I just loved how you brought that up because it's so important for people to ask themselves in the pursuing of their dreams, what is really what I want and what am I trying to prove? Because a lot of times what I've noticed, a lot of times our dreams, some of it, like, it's kind of like a, a gumbo pot, right? A lot of it is good and healthy virtues, but in some of it is just insecurities and vices. And we're really trying to get something to prove to somebody else, to validate ourselves, and to achieve something to be able to show our worth to society. Mm-hmm. And so my question to you is that obviously there's a lot of beauty and virtues and why you wanted to write this book and why you wanted to help humanity, which you definitely have done and I commend you for it. But what were you saying, what would you say are some of those things that were some of the insecurities which fueled you to function out of a place of desperation and not gratitude? Hmm. Different ones at different times. Um, you know, when I started the book, the desperation came uh, really halfway through, though. It was really when I left college because I sort of put myself on the hook. Of my grandma was in tears. My mother was in tears. And I left college because I told them, look, if I don't leave school, I'll never make this dream a reality. And I ended up leaving college, getting a book deal. So now I had parents, my grandparents, the world's biggest publishing house, and my literary agent all expecting me to follow through with what I said I'm going to do. And to my surprise, what I said I was going to do was way harder than I thought. <laughs> now, again, all this was a story in my head. Desperation is a story in your head. Unless, again, I actually want to take that back. For me, desperation was a story in my head. There are people, refugees coming out of Syria, there are, who have real stakes. Uh-huh. For me, it was a story of whether I would be loved and accepted and whether I would be seen as a failure or as a success. Now, it felt very real. I don't want to downplay my emotional reality at that time. It felt extremely real. Um, Yeah, it felt like my fear had its hands around my neck and cutting circulation to my head. And the hard part is, and the worst part is, I wasn't aware of it at the time. And I was just going 100 miles an hour. Um, thankfully, since then, I've been going to therapy, you know, once a week for five years, which has been really, really beneficial. Um, you know, I've been journaling a lot. I meditate twice a day. All of these things have been really helpful. And, you know, I'm not that, you know, I'm only 27, but even just having some hindsight and some perspective uh, has helped a lot. No, that's good. 
That's good because what I've noticed, similar to what you said, is that there is collateral damage on a journey to success. And so much of that definition of success, and you talk about a little bit more, is because of the subjective nature and because of our insecurities, the collateral damage is a byproduct of pursuing insecurities and not really pursuing our dreams. And Being it, driven by is how I would think about it. Okay. Why would you? Why would you say? The, what would you say is the difference? Um, I I don't think I was pursuing my insecurities. I okay. think they were driving the car. Oh yeah, of course, of course. Many times, of when, course, of course. When I thought I was driving the car. Exactly. So that's what I meant. Like your insecurities are driving you. Who's to pursue. who's sitting behind the wheel? Yeah. Is it your fear of being abandoned? Your fear of failure, or is it um, your love of the work? Exactly. And it isn't until you begin to do this deep work. And to be able to sit in isolation until you're able to see it. Um, did you watch Mad Men? Mm. Okay, I don't want to ruin it for people who didn't watch it. But at the end of the show, Mad Men, like it was such a beautiful ending, and I don't want to ruin it. <laughs> but there, but the one of the points, <laughs> I don't want to ruin it. But 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 one of the points was is that once you're finally free from all that of the rat race, and you're free to pursue your dreams out of abundance and gratitude and not out of desperation and security, that's really when that battery pack gets really charged up and you're able to pursue your dreams with real tenacity and relentlessness because the worst part about being fueled by um, bitterness or being fueled by insecurity or fueled fueled by desperation is that it kills you. But when you're fueled by gratitude, it actually empowers you. Yeah. And so how would you say or what would you say is the biggest difference from you now to when you started the journey? In one word, I would say uh, liberated. And at the heart of the third door, you know, when I started this journey seven, nine years ago now, when I was 18, I thought that if I just pack all of this knowledge and wisdom into one book, um, that's what that's what help, would help people the most. You know, I just want to stuff all of you know all these tools and tactics into one book. Um, and in some ways, the book has elements of that still in there. You know, there's Bill Gates' Negotiating Secrets, there's Tim Ferriss' Cold Email Template. It's it's in there. However, what I've learned is that. At the heart of this book, it's really a mission about possibility. If I've learned one thing over that seven-year journey, it's that you can give someone all the best tools and tactics in the world and their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same. And I've learned very recently just in this past year that what possibility actually gives someone the tangible transformation that the possibility gives you is a state of liberation where you are no longer imprisoned by your fears of failure and rejection and abandonment and of suffering. And instead, you are in a state of trust, trusting yourself, trusting the journey, trusting life. And... That's really what 
my mission is. Hmm. It's so funny because it's like you went on a you went on a journey to begin to liberate yourself from the expectations of family. Not consciously. Not consciously. I was just trying to yeah. figure out how to be big like Bill Gates, yeah, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How to be successful like yeah. Steven Spielberg. Yeah, that was why I started. Yeah, and it's funny because that's found in how can I break this down? So this really good book I was reading. Have you read it called <laughs> By the, Huh? Just even saying this out loud, there are like a couple of thing I'm very grateful most of the, you know, reviews online are extremely, extremely beautiful and positive. Yeah. There's every, you know, now and then a couple that are like, you know, there wasn't enough, you know, tools and tactics about, you know, Bill Gates. <laughs> First of all, there's a good amount in there. But second of all, you missed the point. Yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. You missed the point of the book. Yeah. Um, you missed the point. Yeah. And to me, I had to, I was actually talking to someone about this this morning. I had the vision for the book. And then when it started growing up, you know, walking, I realized it had its personality and a will of its own. And I had to start listening to it. And what's funny is friends of mine saw before I did. And, you know, it's, it took seven years. And it took seven years to come to realize that what the soul of this book is really about. The gift it really gives people. And it's that sense of possibility. Because mm-hmm. if you change what someone believes is possible, you change what becomes possible. And that's the biggest gift you can give someone. No, that's that's exactly what I what I saw because because I like I said, starting your journey, you wanted to see like I want to be successful like these individuals. How was it possible? And I think a lot of the desire for success is built on freedom. I think that's so that I was mentioning there's this guy named David Data wrote a book called The Way of the Superior Man. And one of his points is that men and women are both seeking freedom. The way we go about it is differently, but for the most part, we're all seeking freedom. And what we what what we love about some of these greatest figures is their freedom to create. The freedom to be themselves. The freedom we perceive they have. Exactly. Exactly. As all perception. I've met a lot of very su- successful people who are not free. Of course. And I've met a lot of people who are not you know, materially successful, who are completely liberated. Exactly. And so with the freedom that we, we perceive. We think they're correlated. I thought it's, co- it's not correlated. Exactly. And so that's why you went after it, right? Uh, it's not- correlated to a degree. Okay. You need some money to yeah, pay yeah. your bills, to eat. Yeah. Um, that that's important. Mm-hmm. But you don't need to be a billionaire. Yeah, you don't even need to be a millionaire. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a story. So what? That's a story that society tells you. Of course, of course. Yeah, it's a story, and it's the story of the leprechaun, the story of the, the 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 dog who chases the rainbow, chases the fire truck, and then gets it, and then realizes that, for the most part. The journey was actually a lesson to teach you that the end destination that you thought would give you freedom isn't what really gave you freedom. And the journey is actually what gave you the freedom because the journey gave you the mindset. The journey taught you the lesson and the journey exposed to you the truths about yourselves that you never would have seen before you went on that journey. And the journey showed you 
the success of others and the vanity of others. Because by being able to see those at the top, you're able to see that some of them at the top weren't as happy as we thought they were. And we're able to see the realities of life. We're able to see those who are also at the bottom who are even more happier than the greatest of billionaires. So what I really loved about your story is it's like this full circle journey. Obviously, you're in chapter one of life, but I just really loved that. And that's something I felt like I was on this year. Like I felt like this year for the first time, I didn't need to prove anything to anybody. And I, and I, and I finally realized that the identity I was seeking from the beginning was, was here all along. And that's what I love so much about your story. And that's what I love so much about your book, because it takes people on this journey to, like you said, see the possibilities and see the freedom and liberation that they can experience within themselves. So in closing, there's a young man, there's a young woman who has a dream, who has goals, who has a great ambition. They want to do something that is like moving a mountain. Nobody in this or world. Or someone older in life. Let's say somebody in their 60s. <laughs> no I like matter, that, yeah. No matter man. what their age is, they have a dream and everybody yeah. is telling them they can't do it. And not, not just everybody, they don't believe they can do it. What is your message for that individual who has that big dream, who has that big goal, who has that big ambition, but who feels crippled by the voices in their head from achieving it? Everyone else started there too. Yet still, they took one step forward anyway. That's all you have to do today. Take one step forward. That was short. That was sweet. That was powerful. Alex, man, this has been a great pleasure, man. Man, I really appreciate the wisdom. I really appreciate the experience. And I really appreciated the vulnerability. Because what I loved about this conversation was the raw emotion of the experience. Because a lot of times when people experience successful accomplishments like you, it's so easy, like you said, from everyone outside looking in and be like, oh, I want to be like just like him. But not knowing, like, man, I went through a lot to get here. And I want to be able to expose you guys the good, the bad, and ugly of my story. And I really appreciate you doing so. Guys, make sure that you get Alex's book, The Third Door. Make sure that you guys also reach out to Alex. Alex, where can they reach out to you at? Um, you know, on social, Instagram, Twitter, my favorite. It's at Alex Benaya. Yeah, guys, so make sure you follow him on social. Reach out to him. Let him know what about this podcast stood out to you. You guys know how we that. get down. My name is Afiz, and I'm joined by Alex Benaya. And we're the Roommates, guys. Thank you so much. Be sure to reach out and support Alex, and you guys have a great day.